John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. But if you'll remember, at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter 2 was the story of the wedding at Cana. Um, you know the story. You know that Jesus turned water into wine. Okay, so you think, one of the things that we've been talking about is this chronological um, order of Jesus' Jesus's ministry and how he started and what he's focusing on. In his first miracle, it wasn't as much about showing how awesome he is as much as it was showing the point of what he is after for his entire ministry. And the first thing he does is he, he makes this transformation happen, water into wine, and he uses these vats of water that are typically used for purification. What I mentioned briefly in that sermon, but I'm setting this up today with that is, is that what's on God's heart is purification. He wants to see his people pure, holy, set apart, different from the world, and Christ-like. So when he turned that water into wine and he used that, he's making a much bigger statement than, look what I can do. It's more of a statement of, look what I will do. And then in verse 13, it says that the Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And we talked about how that's what Jesus would have done as a Jewish male. Every Jewish male had to do that. And Jesus was being faithful to that tradition because he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law, right? And in verse 14, it says that he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. And he found the money changers seated at their tables. Now, when it says that he found them in the temple, actually the place in the temple that he would have found them is what was called the court of the Gentiles. It wasn't so much in the area where the priests were doing their work or even in the court of men right outside of the area where the priests would be doing their work or even outside of that in the court of the women because they had to keep the women separate. You know, you never know what they're going to come up with. So they had to keep them separate. (laughs) But even outside that, in the bigger area, they had built these big colonnades around the temple. And so there was this whole outer, outer court that was called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where the Gentiles could come and they could mill around and do whatever it is that they did. So when it says that they were in the temple, they were actually in the court of Gentiles. In other words, just on their way up to the area of worship. And it says that they, had, um, that they were selling cattle and sheep and all of the things necessary for sacrifices and then it says also there were money changers and you got to get a picture of this because i think this is you're going to see jesus come unglued in a minute you need to understand why so the cattle and the things that they were selling were the proper sacrifices for um for the people to take to the priests and do that and so a lot of these people came a long way and so somewhere along the line some religious leader or somebody got the bright idea dude what if we just sold all these animals here, so they have to buy them. You guys understand what I'm saying? And so, if you need a dove, you need a boar, well, you can buy them right here. Get your boar, you know, get your dove. And so they could buy them right there. But here's the deal. They could only buy those animals. And, and also, remember, this is where they would, they would pay their taxes and stuff. But they could only buy the animals and pay their taxes with a certain currency, with a certain coinage. And it just so happens that it wasn't the typical coinage that you could use outside. Why? Because that had Caesar's face on it. And so you can't have any engraven image in the temple. And so there was a special coin. And so that's what the money changers were for. If you wanted to buy these animals or if you wanted to pay your taxes, first you had to exchange those coins so that you could buy it with the special temple coins. 
Historically, what they were doing is they were gouging the people. They weren't giving them a fair trade on the money. And that's why, you know, it was one of the reasons that Jesus was getting upset. That and the location, you guys, of where this was. It says that he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the table. And look at this. It says, and he made a scourge of cords or a whip. Your version might say a whip. And it says that he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and then he overturned their tables. And he said to those who were selling doves, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So Jesus comes unglued. He does not like what's going on here. And one of the things I thought about this week um, that it represents is taking the work out of worship. Because before they started doing this, however, I don't know how long they had been doing this, but before they were doing this, people had to bring their cattle from wherever they were coming. If they were coming 50 miles away or they were coming 100 miles away, they had their you know, little thing of doves and they had their whatever. They were bringing their offering to the temple. You guys understand what I'm saying? You can just buy it here and people are like, oh, cool, because that's a lot of work. You know how many times they stop and do their droppings, you know? So they were ready. They were like that. And what was not necessarily acceptable had become the norm. And I think that's one of the things that Jesus was upset about. It's like, you guys are really okay with this? Well, remember, this is the Messiah coming and establishing his ministry. And he's like, I'm not okay with this. <laughs> I am not okay with this. And look what it says. It says that he made a, score, a scourge of cords and drove them all out. Let me pause and say that there's some people that believe that Jesus lost it, that he saw it and was just had a conniption and just started whipping things around. Can I just tell you that there's no possible way that that happened? Why? Someone want to take a guess? Yeah, it would take a few minutes, maybe even longer, to make a whip. I think Jesus saw what was going on and was like, he went and got some materials, and he starts making, making a little whip. You know what I'm saying? He didn't lose his temper. He wasn't out of order. He was just like, this is not going to happen. And so he makes, and I don't know if it was one of those long ones, short ones or a long one, but he took the time to make a whip. In other words, he didn't lose his patience or lose his temper, but he was very upset. You guys get that? I don't want us to move forward thinking that Jesus was going around beating people. And you know what? And here's what I thought about too. Even the way that he did it, you guys. I'm probably going into way too much detail. But think about what he says. It says that he drove the cattle out. It says that he wiped the coins off the table and then overflipped them. But look, look what it says he says about the doves. And to those who were selling the doves, he simply said, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. Now think about this, because in the midst of this um, holy anger, holy indignation, Jesus has his wits about him. Remember how the scripture says, it says, be angry, but do not sin. Think about this. People don't pay attention to details. Maybe I'm just kind of one of those weirdos. But drive the cattle out. Well, they're running. You know, it was scary because Jesus is doing his thing. But those cattle, that cattle and animals could have been retrieved, Right? Yeah, I saw them going up that way down 9th Street, going down there. You know, they could have went and got their cows. The money changers, they were like, all right, all right, it's cool. They could have picked up their money, right, and retrieved their money. But the doves, what if he just said, would they have ever have gotten those doves back? Never. And you don't think Jesus thought about that? Listen, Jesus didn't hate the sinners. 
He just hated the sin. He actually loved the sinners. And he's like, I get that you need to make a living. This is just not the way I prefer you to do it. Do you guys see that? There's a lot of grace and mercy in that statement. So I see even Jesus modeling. I am very angry with a holy indignation here, but I am not going to go outside and act outside of my character. How much, we could probably just stop right there. Some of you that are parents of multiple kids are like, shoot, you know. <laughs> Dang. Let's keep going, though. So he said, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. Another way that he said it another time, like when he addressed the adulterous woman, neither do I accuse you. Just go and, and stop sinning. So listen, this is not right. Go away. Stop sinning. Then it says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, a, a, a prophetic scripture, a messianic scripture popped into their brain. Oh yeah, it said that the Messiah would be hot for his house, that he would have a zeal for his house. And then the Jews said to him, what sign, hey, what sign do you have or what sign of your authority are you going to show to verify that you can do these things? And, and they're, they're totally playing off Moses and the law of Moses because Mo, Moses was the big shot in their life, right? Not that that's wrong, but that was where he was. Remember when Moses came into Egypt and I'm going to do this, let my people go, and we're going to do this, we're going to go out of here. And what did he do? He showed signs. All of those 10 plagues were signs that he had the authority moving forward. That's why he was able to lead you know, a couple of million people out of Egypt. He showed through signs that he had the authority to do that. And so these people are like, hey, whoa, Moses, we follow Moses. What sign do you have that you have the authority to come in here? <laughs> Can you imagine? What if somebody walked in here right now and said, you put that wireless headset mic off your face. That's of the devil. I would probably be like, who are you? And do you want to step outside? You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's essentially what they're saying. You want to step outside? The court of the Gentiles? And so... Here's what Jesus says. Destroy this temple. You want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. Now, I've read several books and commentaries over the years that, that a lot of scholars believe that Jesus was literally going like this, not this. You guys understand? Destroy this temple. And I will raise it up again in three days. And we know in, in Corinthians, we'll talk about this in a few minutes, that Paul says that our, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And certainly, Jesus' body was a temple of the Holy Spirit. You, you tear down this temple and watch me raise it again. And he's, of course, um, speaking of his death and resurrection. But they didn't get that. The Jews then said, dude, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? By the way, do you remember when Jesus was standing in the courts and they were wanting to crucify him? One of the main things that brought, the, uh, one of the main accusations against him that brought him down. You guys remember what it was? He said he was going to tear the temple down and raise it up in three days. They were not happy about that one. So the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, uh, so when he was raised from his dead, raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scriptures and the word 
which Jesus had spoken. In other words, later on down the road, after all that had happened, they were like, oh my gosh, y'all remember when Jesus said that? I totally remember. And they remembered. And then it says in verse 23, and I'll just read the rest of this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. He was obviously doing other miracles and and probably not even just miracles, but things like that that was out of the norm. Like, what is this guy? And these signs were indicative of him. Again, a zeal for the house, a zeal for the Lord. These signs were about him stepping out of everybody's comfort zone and being a little bit different. He was a zealot for the Lord. And people were like, whoa, what you getting all riled up about? Because I'm the Messiah. The only person that came close to that kind of working up was John the Baptist. And he was doing it out in the desert. But Jesus was doing it in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the holy city. You guys get it? And I could go into all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about how he would do that. In fact, I'll give you a couple. I wrote a couple of down. In Malachi 3.1, which is the last um, book of the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, it says that the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And it goes on to say that he shall purify the sons of the Levi, the sons of Levi, which we know are the priesthood. He's going to go to the house, the temple, and purify him. And another prophet, Zechariah 14, uh, it says, And there shall no longer be a traitor, or not traitor, T-R-A-I-T-E-O-R, like a bad guy, but a traitor, someone who's trading in the house of the Lord on that day. We shall no longer have a traitor. And there's several scriptures that I could go into. It goes on to say, but Jesus, on his part... Remember it says that many were believing in him, many were following him, but Jesus, listen to this, on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Why wasn't he being quite opened up to these people who were goo-goo-eyed over who he was and what he could do? Why was he not trusting himself? And there's a lot in that statement, isn't there? Why was he not trusting himself? And look what it says. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, he didn't entrust them because he knew. He knew the condition of these people. He knew that they were flaky. He knew that they were wavering. He knew that they were not solid. He knew knew that they needed three years or so of good, solid uh, solid teaching and um, him talking about the kingdom of heaven. And here's the deal. He knew what was in them. Here's what you may not know. If you look in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's another story. You don't see it in John, but you see it in those of another time at the end of his ministry. After he comes and rides in on the donkey, he actually does this again. You can find it in, uh, I think I wrote it down. Yeah, Matthew 21, if you want to write that down, you can see um, there towards the end of his ministry, Mark 11 uh, and Luke 19. You see that he actually does this again, but it's a different account. Here in John, we see that he does it at the beginning of his ministry. But three of the um, Gospels testify that he did this again at the end of his ministry. The only difference is, is the last time, he didn't make a whip and beat people. <laughs> and in the last time, he said, um, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a house of thieves or a den of thieves. You guys understand that? A lot of people think that these, you know, these are the same event, but there's not. they're not. He did this twice. Now listen to me so that I can get into this. Again, the priority of his ministry, the reason he came was to bring cleansing, purification, righteousness, sanctification, setting apart to finish what he started. First to Israel, 
and then to the nations. So when he cleanses this, he does it at the beginning. Purification, cleansing was on his mind. And it was on his mind again, obviously, through his whole ministry. But you see him one more time in the temple drive out the money changers and those who were making concessions. Isn't that interesting? And so I thought, you know, there's all kinds of things that I could say on that. But I'm just going to make it real simple. When he says, his house... I want to tell you a few things that I think he's talking about that will really challenge us where we're at today. First of all, you can write this down. I am his house. I want you guys say that. I'm going to say it again. I am his house. We are his house. You guys are his house. Every individual believer is the house of God. You think about all the way back when he set up the tabernacle, the tent of meetings with Israel. Tabernacle, which means to dwell or a dwelling place. God's heart has always been to dwell with his people, and he's always had a place where he would meet with them. It was the tabernacle, and then it was the temple that Solomon built. Of course, that one was destroyed, and then Herod came and built another one, or Herod's temple. And then, of course, that one was destroyed in 70 AD. But listen, there was always this place of worship. And then you remember the encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well. That's right, John chapter 4. Like, you're talking about worship on this mountain, and they're talking about worship in Jerusalem. Woman, I'm telling you that there's coming a time where the worshipers worship in spirit and truth. It won't be so much about this place or that place. Not that a place won't be significant. But the bigger issue is that you will be able to worship where you're at anytime and have a connection with God. Why? Because you are his house. No more tabernacles. No more temples. We are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Now, I'm going to hit on something really quick. I'm not going to beat anybody to death, but you need to hear this as it relates to where we're at. You guys remember where it says, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, this is the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians, and these guys were messed up. If you don't remember, they were jacked up. Okay, but remember when he says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? How many of you know that one? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever read a little bit after, but even quite a bit before? And what he says that in context of. I want, I'm going to read it. And this is the NLT version. Paul says, you say that I am allow, I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. In other words, there are certain things that aren't sinful that I can do. I, I have permission to do that. Or there's grace in, in scripture to do that. But it might not be a good idea for me. Drinking is one of those things. Is it a sin to drink? No. But should everybody drink? No. There may be people who deal with a a past in that, okay? So there's things that, yeah, I could do that, but should I do that? Is that the most beneficial thing? And so he's kind of having this conversation. I must not become a slave to anything. It's like (laughs) I was talking to somebody the other day about video games. You know, who was I talking to? I I was talking to you, uh, Rodney. We were talking about video games and how, you know, people are addicted to video games. I heard of a lady not too long ago that literally had to go to a psych ward because she was addicted to Candy Crush. I don't know if that's even true. That's just what I heard. But let's say it is true. What? I'm just saying, I don't know. I don't know. If it was you, then forgive me for airing your laundry. What I'm saying is, is Candy Crush a sin? Some of you are like, God, I hope not. But what I'm saying is that when it is to the point where you've got to be put in a place of health treatment, 
because you can't stop playing that game, then obviously it's a problem. That's what Paul's saying. Now listen. So pause. You also say food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. Well, this is true. Though someday God will do away with both of those, your food and your stomach. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it with a prostitute? Never! And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says, the two are united into one. We know it's talking about marriage, man and female, male and female. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And then he says this with an exclamation point, at least in the NLT. But contextually, this is true. Run from sexual sin. Run from sexual sin. I am his house. And there's all kinds of things that we can talk about. Well, I'm the house of the Lord. I probably shouldn't smoke. I'm the house of the Lord. I probably shouldn't dip. Oh, I'm the house of the Lord. I probably shouldn't eat sugar. I don't know. Whatever. Contextually, he's saying, flee from sexual immorality. Is it true that, that what he's talking about applies to these other things? That we, we, I, I can eat a donut, but maybe I shouldn't eat 2,000 donuts. In context, as it relates to your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, he is saying, run from sexual sin. Your versions say sexual immorality. Actually, some of your versions say immorality. And so what happens is people lump any kind of immorality, lying or cheating, and your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, so you shouldn't do these things. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's true. But in context, the word immorality, when you get into it, is talking about sexual immorality. And I think this is one of the biggest things that we need to be made aware of and continually challenged in in our culture on so many fronts. He said no other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. <laughs> How many of you knew that? Well, smoking will kill you. <laughs> Not like this one. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And then he says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God, do you, not, um, you do not belong to yourself. And then look at what he says. For you were bought with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. And that whole bought with a high price, that goes back to the Jewish wedding um, custom where the man would come in and they would pay what's called a bride price to show how much he was willing to give for her bride. This is all in conjunction with marriage and, and oneness and sexuality and all of that. You must honor God with your body. Listen, I am his house. And I don't even know if I have time to go any further tonight, but listen to me. If nothing else, what are we talking about? The house of the Lord. He cleansed it. Beginning of his ministry, at the end of his ministry. He even said, you can tear down this body. The second thing is, we are his house. You can write that down. We are his house, as in the, the church. You know, I am his house. Je Jesus is jealous for the purity of his bride. We are his house. Jesus is jealous for the sincerity of his church. The sincerity of his church. Think of all the things that are going on. There are 2,250,000 people that were probably there that day. 
because they were there for the Feast of Passover. And so you can imagine the hustle and bustle and the things that were going on. People probably even just going in, yeah, give me two doves, okay, yep. Okay, sacrifice those for me. Hurry, Aunt Marge has got dinner on the table. It had become really flippant. Of course, there's a remnant of people that were very serious about these sacrifices. But by and large, the system had become a farce, corrupt, not good. We are his house. Uh, I am his house, but we are his house. The, the, the church, the body, remember what he said? Tear down this temple. Tear down this temple. And he's probably pointing to his own body. Well, what, is, what does Paul say? We are his body. There's a desire that he has for the purity and then the sincerity of his church. You know, the word sincere means free from pretense or deceit. Proceeding from genuine feelings. I have a bunch of scriptures that I could read on that, but I think you guys pick up what I'm saying. When it comes to the church, when it comes to um, the body, one of the things I thought about when he says um, in 1 Corinthians is even as the body is one and yet has many members, all of the members of the body, though we're many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile or Greek, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many, so that there may be, listen to me, no division in the church, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And I thought about this. I thought about, though, the concessions were out of line. We talked about this earlier. Out of line, out of order, it wasn't right for them to be there, that the people appreciated in their own way, the convenience of the all-inclusive religious experience. And I thought about how this could relate to us, and I'll try to communicate this quickly. Believers do this when they depend on a church staff or church leaders to take care of all the needs that exist in the body. So even what's going on, you, you know, you couldn't bring your own sacrifice. You can't bring your own situation. You're you're playing all that down. Oh, you're depending upon the leaders to produce this system because that's that's who did it. That's who had probably the idea to have the money exchanged. Hey, bring them up here. We can have them sell here. And then think of the rent that they probably charged the money changers. (laughs) The Pharisees and that were really the Sadducees were banking. This was a big old business. And Jesus is like, what? Listen, we make the church a business when we don't do our part. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? We make the church a business when we don't do our part, haul our load. Why? Because we're many members, but we're one body. When we look at the pastor or the youth pastor or the worship leader or the whatever to do all the work, and I'm not saying that this body is guilty of it, but we see it in the body of Christ, right? When we do that, we have made the church, a den of thieves. Because it's, I will pay you, you tell us what we do, you put on the show, we'll be involved if we want to. But best of all, if you could just uh, have something easy for me to gather here, then I'll be good with that. Are you telling me that's not the status quo of American church today? The Lord is not pleased with that. And I'll share this last one. This 
is his house. And this church building is his house. And just less than a quarter mile up the road is a church called Grace Community. And that is his house. And over there is Green Acres. That's his house. And you got New Covenant Church. That's his house. And I could list <laughs> actually about 300 churches in this area. And listen to me. Listen to me. They are all his house. Jesus is jealous for the frequency and authenticity of our gathering. He just is. Remember what he said, and we didn't read it in this one, but in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke account, at the end of his ministry, it says that he tells the people, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer. And then you think about, I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures. Jeremiah 29. We know Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, hope in the future. In verse 12 it says, then you will call upon me and you will come and you will pray to me. It doesn't say you will stay and pray to me, though of course you can. We know that theologically. But he says you will come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And of course that points to sincerity. That points to um, an authenticity. Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We talked a lot about this in the I Am Soma series we did at the beginning of the year. But how, how, could, we, how could we stimulate one another on to love and good deeds? Not, and then it says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. In other words, when we come together, there is a level of support. There is a purpose of encouragement, a purpose of empowering. When we come together, it's not just to do it. It's for a purpose, to empower, encourage, lift up, exalt Jesus together, for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to work together. He says, how, let's, let's consider, how could we stimulate or spur one on another, uh, another to love and good deeds? Well, not forsaking your own assembly is a good start, right? Because when you do that, you're not getting the benefits of the body. And then he says, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And you guys know in August, I'm going to start a teaching series called Signs, where we're going to talk about the signs that, um, that, that we are in the last days. I'm going to do as best of a job as I can, not being a scholar, to point to some of those signs. Matthew 5, Jesus' very words. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar. Now, why would he talk about bringing an offering to the altar if he was about to do away with it all? If, if we were going to go to a, a lonesome dove method of worship, why would he talk about bringing an altar, uh, um, offering to the altar? Because he didn't come to do away with the law and the gathering and any of that. He came to fulfill it. He came to make it more fulfilling. He says, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, which is at the temple or at a place of worship, a house of prayer, and there that you remember that your brother has something against you, dude, leave. Don't offer anything until you go back and reconcile your brother. And then it says, come back. Where? To the place of worship and offer your offering there. Now, granted, we don't have to offer doves and bulls. We offer a sacrifice of praise, our worship. Okay, so that's the shift. It's no longer blood and uh, animals and blood and all that. It is thanksgiving, praise. Amen. 
And then another place in Matthew 18, he says, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. And we're familiar with that. And that can mean a lot of things. I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to somebody that people trust in case they don't trust me. And so I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, two or three are mentioned not to encourage absence, but to cheer the faithful few who do not forget the assembling of themselves together, as is the manner of some. Let me read that again. Because Jesus said, where two or three have gathered in my name, I am in their midst. Spurgeon says, listen, two or three are mentioned not to encourage absence, not to encourage the first say, well, we don't, as long as there's a couple of us, that could be me and my wife. Shoot, my dog loves God. He and I go hunting. We have a time. That's not what he means. But you guys see that? Well, I mean, we take scriptures and we try to come up with ways that we don't need the house of the Lord, or the church, or the gathering. Well, it says, as long as there's a couple of you, then God will move. And that's true. But what Spurgeon, who is a pretty sharp dude, what he's saying is like, that is not an excuse to not come to the house of the Lord. That is not an excuse to not come and pray to me so that he will listen as we seek him find and find him with a pure heart that he will move on our behalf. That is not an excuse to get rid of this house. He says, but to cheer the faithful few on, to go, there are still people who want to gather. That was the point of this. To cheer the faithful few who do not forget the assembling of themselves together as the manner, as is the manner of some. That's Charles Spurgeon. I'll, I'll stop with that. You guys, when, when Jesus goes in here, he does it at the beginning of his ministry and he makes a solid point. Purification that was on his heart, on his mind. Bringing things back and right into order. And he does it again at the end of his ministry. I can't stress that enough. At the beginning and at the end. Right after he rides in on the donkey. He comes into Jerusalem, goes in the temple. And says, my father's house is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. A couple of ways that we make it a den of thieves. I've already said one. Talking about when we um, expect leaders to do everything. But really, when we are not alert and aware and even mindful that I, we, myself, my temple, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, his house. When I'm, I'm choosing sin, you guys, you guys understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about when it, you know, sin comes and I'm like, whoa, broadsided. I'm talking about when we go looking for that stuff. There's a problem. And that's what Jesus, I mean, even think about what was it that he put together? What did he put together? A whip. I could be just reading into things here. But what was used to bring our purification? How about the lashes upon his back with a whip? 39 to be exact. I don't know, maybe I'm reading into it. But you guys see that? His heart is that we're pure. Let's stand. And I'll end with this as we're standing because I want to pray over us. And, and I know we're running a little bit late. Listen, you guys, people are not thinking, even in the church, people are not thinking about their relationship with the Lord in the area of righteousness. They don't mind the gifts. 
They don't mind the worship. They don't mind the this, that, and the other. They don't mind the miraculous. They don't mind this, that, and the other. But when it comes down to living a life worthy of the calling that they have received, Scripture says that he is coming um, for a pure and spotless bride. And, And really, you know, if you think about it, People get real hung up on that. He's coming for a pure and spotless bride. No, he's coming for us who are hanging on to him for that greater grace. And it actually says that he will present to himself a pure and spotless bride. So we won't actually be pure and spotless until he presents us to himself. But who will he present? Those who are pressing into him. Those who are are keeping their eyes fixed upon him. The author and perfecter of their faith. That all rides together. rings true together. The perfecter of our our faith. Lord, perfect my faith. I'm going to choose not to sin. I'm not going to chase this thing anymore. This thing that has so easily entangled me. I'm not going to let it do it anymore. I will get help. I will get counseling. I will get three guys to call me every day if that's what it takes to stop doing this sin. Why? Because I want to be presented to the Father. Blameless, holy, pure, and spotless. Amen? The reality of that is being lost and has become about all these other many things in the house of the Lord. But the Lord is, He is getting His church ready. Amen? Amen?